Hey, while they're getting candy, before we get started, uh, just a quick thank you to anybody who helps with the team kid. Um, we got a good thing going on on Sunday nights, in case you guys don't know about it. I know a lot of you aren't um, around on Sunday nights, but uh, the kids meet from 6 to 7.30. They do uh, good Bible study. They do good... Uh, music training, things like this. And uh, there's a there's a handful of uh, rock-solid adults that work with all of our kids. And so just want to tell them thank you. And uh, if you're interested in helping them with uh, the kids sometimes, uh, you may want to uh, let somebody know, and we'll see if we can't get you plugged in helping somewhere. But uh, again, uh, if you know of anybody who has uh, kids who aren't doing anything on Sunday nights and you want something uh, good for them to do, uh, there's that also. Uh, there's, excuse me, there's Team Kid for them to get plugged into. So again, thank you. And uh, if you have your Bible this morning, turn to the book of Exodus chapter 13. We're going to finish the book of Exodus today. Next week, we'll cover the book of uh, Leviticus. I'm telling you, you're going to enjoy it. It's going to be a great week next week. Uh, I have been, I've actually been more look as I've prepared for this week, I've spent more time being excited about next week. Uh, I'm telling you, that's how, that's how this week is gone. And so, uh, so be ready, be praying and uh, ask that God would be uh, preparing our hearts for Uh, for what we're going to share. But book of Exodus chapter 13, let me go to the Lord in prayer and then we'll get started this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you are indeed the greatest storyteller that has ever been in existence. Lord, thank you for uh, writing your words in a book so that we could have them for the ages to come. Lord, thank you that after 400 years in slavery, there was a people who didn't know you and thank you for introducing yourself to them uh, in such a way that was as grand as it is and so that the whole world would take notice of you. God, as we, uh, as we finish up this book of uh, Exodus, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that you would open our minds to the things you would tell us. And Lord, I pray that you would use me, your servant, to feed your people. And I pray that we would forever be changed uh, to be more like you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, by way of review, we are in Exodus chapter 13, but if you remember, we've been trekking through the Bible. We've been going at a pretty good pace. Uh, I want to remind you that it is, uh, it is during this book of Exodus that Moses writes the book of Genesis and Moses, uh, introduces this people who have been in slavery for 400 years to God. And so Moses uh, writes Genesis and God in the book of Genesis introduces himself to the world as the creator. And one of the reasons he does that is because the creator gets to make the rules and the creator knows how things best operate. And so he is the one that is perfectly situated to tell you how you should live your life because he's the one who created you. Follow me? Good. If I say Bojangles, you'll all look up. So I know how to get amens out of this crowd now. So here we have uh, scripture. You have creation that God starts with and he creates everything perfect. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 2, you learn that man has a purpose in life. And man's purpose, my purpose, your purpose is to worship and obey God. You find that in Genesis chapter 3, all of the, that got ruined by sin. Sin enters the world, and in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God comes down and he makes a promise that the seed of a woman is going to crush the head of Satan. And so you have the idea here in Genesis chapter 3 that God is going to fix this sin problem. You keep moving along, and you find that by Genesis chapter 6, man is so sinful that God is regretful that he even made man. And so he sends a flood, and he destroys the, the everybody except for Noah and his family because of sin. 
Then you pick up and you uh, you see that in Genesis chapter not Genesis chapter six after the flood, it's kind of like God hitting the reset button and He gives Noah and his family a chance to start over again. Right? He tells them to be fruitful and multiply, to worship and obey, and fill the earth with worshipers. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, it's all run amok again. And the people have now built a tower to themselves as opposed to a tower for God. And so now you have man is worshiping himself and not God. So God says, okay, Abraham, I choose you in Genesis chapter 12. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you land, seed and a blessing. And through you, I'm going to draw all the nations of the world back to myself. If you ever wondered what God's mission was, that's it. Through Abraham, God is going to draw the world back to himself. And he's going to do it through land, seed, and a blessing. And now, so in Genesis chapter 18, he says, Abraham, you're the example. I want people to live up to your standard. And if people will live up to your standard, I'll be able to bring about the blessings that I promised. Well, as Abraham has children and he has grandchildren, great-grandchildren, you get farther down the line and they're an ungodly people. And they're not living up to Abraham's standard. And so God still wants to bring about this land seed and a blessing through Abraham. But he can't now because the people are so sinful. So what he does is he takes them and he puts them in Egypt and he puts them in slavery for 400 years until they grow to a bigger number and they can occupy the land that God has for them. The promised land, which the people are on their way to, the land of Canaan, is approximately the size of Vermont. All of you remember your geography. Vermont's a pretty small state northeast of the country, and Israel is the same size as Vermont. So it'd be impossible for a group of 70 people to take over a whole state. But now that they're in slavery, they've been growing in number, they've been growing in number, and now they're a people about 2 million strong, and God is ready to bring them out of slavery and bring them into the promised land. 2 million people stand a much better shot of taking over Vermont as opposed to a group of 70. With me? Yeah, that's just common sense. So here we go. So now they're in, they're in slavery. They're in Egypt. And God calls out Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to take the people and lead them out of slavery. Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and lead my people out of slavery into the promised land. And Moses says, yeah, good plan. One tiny little problem. What's your name? I don't, I don't know who you are. And so God says, okay, this is my name. And then the rest of the Egyptian people don't know who the Lord is either. And so God uses 10 plagues to reintroduce himself to his people. And all of those 10 plagues, we said, and you can go back to any of the downloads that we have and get any of this that may pique your interest. And so he uses 10 plagues that combat all 10 of the gods that the Egyptians serve. And so now God has shown himself to be mightier and Pharaoh has just said, get out. So he has sent all of the people out of Egypt and now they are... On their own. And you're talking about a group that's two million people strong have all left Egypt and now they're, they should be walking to the promised land, the same land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So now you have in chapter 13, that's where we're going to pick up. They've done all 10 plagues have taken place. The 10th plague is, uh, is when the angel of death comes and takes out the firstborn. And so in Genesis chapter, excuse me, Exodus chapter 13, verse 3. Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery, for by a powerful hand, the Lord brought you out of this place. Again, he's going to say in verse eight, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. So your sons are going to ask questions in verse eight. What's so great about this day? And you're to tell them we do all of this because the Lord took us out of Egypt. 
Then again in verse 14, it says, And it shall be when in time when your son comes to you saying, What is this that you shall say to him? With a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, the house of slavery. And so... The idea here is that Egypt is the, the powerhouse of the world, and Egypt has two million slaves, and nobody in the whole world is going to be able to walk into Egypt and say, let the slaves go. It would be foolishness. They are the world power. They've got chariots. They've got trained men. They have numbers. They have everything that you need. They've got two million slaves. Nobody is going to come into Egypt and say, let the people go. But God does. And so you have the most powerful nation in the world, and God picks up his slaves and he sets them free and he's going to take them into the land that he wants to show them. And he does that through making a mockery of the Egyptians. So then at the end of chapter 13, verse 19, says that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear saying, God shall surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Remember when Joseph was dying? He said, take my bones with you. I don't want to be buried in Egypt, but I want to go with you into the land that God promised. So Moses remembers 400 years later, they pick up Joseph's bones and they walk him with him. They take Joseph with him. It says in verse 20, then they set out from Succoth and went into Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so I read that last section of Genesis of Exodus chapter 13 to tell you that many a times we as Christians, we say that the Israelites wandered in the desert. Any of you guys said that? That the Israelites wandered for 40 years in the desert? Okay, none of you say that. Only me again. Man, I'm the worst one here. Two weeks in a row. So we always say the Israelites were wandering in the desert for 40 years. If your husband was driving in the car and he was following a cloud in the daytime, not a cloud up there, but a visible cloud down low that he could see and a pillar of fire by night, would you say that he was wandering down the road or would you say that he was purposefully following something? Following something. Most of us as men do wander. I'm not lost. I just don't know where I am. We're not lost. Uh, we're just, we're just getting somewhere. I told my wife when I married her that I would take her places she's never been before. And I have not lied. We've been all over this town. We've been all over every other town we've traveled through too. Places never thought we'd get to see. And I have single-handedly taken us there as the driver of the vehicle. But anyways, so I don't want you to think that the Israelites for a second are wandering. They're following God in a pillar of fire at night and a cloud by daytime. So he is readily visible and they're following him. There is no wandering. God's people don't wander. They follow the Lord. And he is there in front of them, guiding them. All right, now we're gonna, we've got a lot of reading to do to catch up to get somewhere. And so today's gonna be a little bit different than normal, but I want you to see the, the overarching picture of the rest of the book of Exodus. And I think you're gonna be pretty amazed at it. Now in chapter 14, verse 10, you guys know that when God takes the people out of the promised land, there's two ways you can get to the promised land. You can go up by the Philistines, which are this, you remember Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. He's a giant of a man. These are warriors. And so God, let's say you've got to get around this podium. Well, you can go this way to the Philistines. And God says that he doesn't take them this way because he doesn't want to free them from Egypt and then them have to fight giants and get scared and back away. So he takes them this way instead. And so it looks like they're going to be cornered in by the Red Sea. And then it says this, as Pharaoh drew near to the sons of Israel, this is verse 10. 
And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, I love this, God has just freed them with ten miraculous plagues. I mean, it was light where you live, and it was dark where other people live. You had, they had frogs, you had nothing. They had gnats, you had nothing. And he's delivered them from everything. Then they, this is the people, said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. (laughs) I've, I've been a pastor at this church. I've been there. Why didn't you just leave us where we were? We'd rather die there than go where you're taking us. Just... Just before this, 10 plagues, 10 miraculous plagues, and they're going somewhere. And the people say, put the brakes on. Did you, are you, are you trying to kill us? We'd have rather died where we were than die where you're taking us. I'm not going there. Heard that before. Then it's, Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward as you lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, listen to this, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and through his horsemen. And so God, you know the story, he he parts the Red Sea, Moses parts the Red Sea, and the Egyptians go through on dry land. And we're not just talking about like the Kashai River that they go through. We're talking about a body of water that they're thinking is about 150 feet deep. And you're talking about a wall of water on both sides, and you go through on dry land. And then the Egyptians come in after them and God lets the water down and he takes out the Egyptians. And then it says, thus, this is verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power, which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so God does all of these miraculous things for a couple reasons. Number 1, so that the Egyptians will fear the or so the Egyptians will know that the Lord is who he says he is, as if those other plagues weren't enough. But now he wipes out all of Egypt's army in one night, and he also does this so that the people of Israel will learn to fear the Lord and respect him. Now Moses is going to sing a song. Chapter 15 verse 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And so they recognize that God single-handedly wipes out the entire Egyptian army. And they're praising God because he's a warrior. God is not passive at all, but he wiped out the Egyptian army. And then in verse 11, listen to this. This is kind of the rest of the song. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? Now, they've been in slavery for 400 years, and they've watched the Egyptians worship all of these gods. And they come out of slavery to serve one God, 
And then they say, who is like you among all the gods? Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. The people have heard and they tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling. The leaders of Moab trembling grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone. Until your people pass over, O Lord, until the people pass over whom you have purchased, you will bring them and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And so they sing this miraculous song. Who is like you, Lord, in all the earth? You alone are, are the one who can save us. And you are amazing. And one of the things that they say is that terror and dread have fallen upon all of these other people. And so Moses, the, Moses happens around 1446 BC. I know if I start saying dates, I'm going to lose you. But about 1446 BC, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. And then if you go over to Joshua chapter 2, Joshua is right after the book of Deuteronomy, about three or four books to your right. Joshua chapter 2, verse 10. Now remember, the people are in Israel, or excuse me, the people are going to be in the wilderness for 40 years. And then Joshua is going to lead them into the promised land. And so 40 years later, 40 years later, this is what the people say. Chapter 2 of Joshua, verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, whom you utterly destroyed. Verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven, above and on the earth beneath. Now go over to Samuel. First Samuel chapter 4. Now, after we go to 1 Samuel, we're going to be back in Exodus. 1 Samuel is right before Kings and Chronicles. 1 Samuel chapter 4. First Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. Now, 1 Samuel takes place about 350 years after what takes place with Joshua. You following me? About 350 years later. Has anything happened in world history 350 years ago that you're still scared of today? Can't think of anything. There's no stories hardly that your grandparents and parents tell you that scare you and make you shiver to the bone. Listen, about 60, 70 years ago, we dropped an atomic bomb on Japan. That doesn't scare people anymore. There's nobody scared of that anymore. And it's only 60, 70 years later. An atomic bomb. We wiped out Hiroshima. There's nobody left. And we're 70 years past that now. And that really doesn't scare us the way it used to. Right after it happened, a lot of you that were in school, you remember doing those drills? You have to hide under your desk? Yeah. For a couple years after those things happened, we were scared. you get in the hallway, get under your desk. But now... We don't do any of those things anymore. We're not scared like we were before. 350 years after this happened, after God freed the Israelites from Egypt, listen to this. 350 years later, it happened 
This is 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5. It happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp that all Israel shouted and with a great shout so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does this noise, what does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. 350 years later, the Philistines are scared to death because God has come to fight against them. And they remember the mighty thing that happened 350 years ago. We weren't even a country then. And these guys remember what happened, and they're scared to death. And so listen to what they say. This is the pep talk. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. And so God's with them, and you you chaps better man up real quick if you want to beat them. Because God's with them, and if you think you're going to beat God, you're going to have to fight like you've never fought before. You guys have all seen Braveheart and the speech that he gives before he before they go into certain death. Man up. Put on your big boy pants. You're going to fight because you're fighting against God today. And this is what they remember. And so this, this isn't just a little thing, the exodus. This is God introducing himself to the world. And 350 years after he does it, people still tremble at his name. That's how mighty and powerful he is. And that's the same God that we serve. So then in chapter 15 of Exodus... In verse 26, he says, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of the Lord and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you, which I have put on the Egyptians for I, the Lord am your healer. So there's a lot more things that happen, a whole lot more things that happen. God gives them instructions in chapter 16. He gives them instructions about manna. So three days after God frees them. Three days after the whole Egyptian army dies, the people start grumbling and complaining again. We don't have any water. Three days ago, you were being chased by an army. And the next day when you woke up without doing anything, their dead bodies were on the shore. And now you're crying about not having any water? Give me a break. You guys know these people? You guys ever, you guys ever seen people like this? Something great happens three days later? I'm thirsty. God just saved your life. And now you're crying because you're thirsty? Cut me some slack here. That's what Moses, I cannot imagine leading two million people like this. But Moses does it. And so as you cruise on through the book of Exodus, you get to see the people's heart. God is doing all these things for them. But meanwhile, the people are doing all of this grumbling. They're doing all this complaining. I mean, three days after he saved your life, you're crying because your canteen's empty. Then he says, he gives them instructions. So he's going he's gonna to bring meat to them at night. In the form of quail. And then he's going to give them bread every morning. So every morning he gives them bread. And he gives them instructions. And they're to go out and get just enough what they need. And the rest of it they're to leave. And they're to eat everything that they gather. Well, the people don't do it. And and worms come into the camp and all sorts of these other things. But what you get to see here is you get to see the people's heart. There's a lack of trust on the part of the people. And they try to hoard all these things that God gives them. Even though he's giving it to them every morning. And you see that these people are not exactly doing the things that God has told them to do. And, and God's anger burns. And so then, let's keep going. We'll go over to 
For the sake of time, we're going we're gonna to skip a handful of things. Go over to 18, chapter 18. Uh, while you're going to 18, you might as well go to 20. All of this is incredibly important. But now God is going to give the Ten Commandments. And so you freed the people from Egypt. And now you have a people who answer to God, but they don't have any rules. Right? Rules are good. They, they really are. They're meant for good. We have too many rules. But for the most part, rules for a society are a very good thing. They keep the order and all of the, and, and everything else. And so what needs to happen now is that you have two million people that are following a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, but they don't have any rules to govern them during the day. And so what does God need to do? He needs to give them some basic rules. So he gives them the Ten Commandments. This is chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then he, he's going to give them the rest of the Ten Commandments. But before he tells them anything that they have to do, before he puts any requirements on their life, he reminds them, don't forget, I'm the God who led you out of slavery. That's why you need to do the things that I'm telling you. Don't forget, I'm the one who created you. That's why you need to do the things that I'm telling you. And so he's not nonchalant with any of these things. He gives them the Ten Commandments you're familiar with. And then in verse 18, he says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance. And so God himself comes to give the Ten Commandments. Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you may not sin. So the people stood at a distance while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Then he's going to give them some more requirements. And so he's going to give them the rest of what we call the old covenant. This is, you remember, God has made covenants all along the way. He, he made a, a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Noah. And whenever you make a covenant, there are stipulations given. And then the covenant is ratified or the covenant is sealed. And normally there's a, there's a blood involved. Remember when Abraham cut the pieces in two, there was blood in the middle. Well, now what's going to happen is that God is going to make a covenant with the people. And the people, uh, let's go to chapter 24. God gives all of these restrictions, and the people have been disobedient all up until this point. God gives all of these instructions, and what do the people say? This is one of the funniest things that happen in the Bible. The people look at Moses, and they say, well, yes, great, everything you've said we will do. And it's like, really? Are these the same guys that, that just did that? And so God makes a covenant with the people, and this is what happens. Moses, this is chapter 24, verse 6. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of blood he sprinkled on the altar Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said all the lord has spoken We will do and we will be obedient So moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said behold the blood of the covenant Which the lord has made with you in the accordance of all these words and Then amazing things happen that we don't have time to cover chapters or verse nine through 18. God, Moses goes up on the mountain. They eat with God. 70 of the elders of Israel get to sit down and share a meal with God and they don't die. All sorts of other great things happen on the top of the mountain. We're going to talk more about them on Wednesday.
And then in the midst of that, we've got to get somewhere. That's why I'm skipping it. But then go over to verse 8 of chapter 25. If you remember when God creates everything, he creates everything. He looks down at his creation and he says, it's good. It's very good. And then what happens the next time scripture picks up, you see that the Lord walked with man in the cool of the day. And so God created everything good because he wanted to dwell with man and walk with man. You see, God has always wanted to be amongst his people. Always. Always. And this is going to come into play later on in this study. But God has always wanted to be with his people. Now his people are free from captivity and they're out in the desert. And God wants to be with them. God enjoys fellowship with his people. You should be walking in fellowship with God through the Holy Spirit each day. There should be a personal, a personalness. Is that a word? I don't even know. There should be something very personal about your walk with Christ, about your walk with God. That a lot of that comes into play with the Holy Spirit. But God wants to be a part of everything you're doing. That's part of the reason that you were created in the image of God is so that he could share that fellowship with you. But now he says in chapter 25, verse 8, let them, let the people construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. According to all that I am going to show you is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furniture, just so you shall construct it, construct it. Now, if you tried to read through the book of Exodus, this is when you were like, okay, where are we going here? Because he's going to take about six chapters and he's just going to give you blueprints. Any of you guys ever read blueprints? It's a pretty boring thing to do. And just flipping page by page by page. No offense to any of you blueprint people, but it, it, it kind of runs on. And so what happens here is that in chapters 25 through 31, now's when we're going to pick up the pace. Chapters 25 through 31, God gives very, very, very specific instructions. Get this. You're an Israelite. And the God who did all of those plagues, the God who killed the firstborn, the God who separated the Red Sea, the God who gave you water from a rock, the God who's raining, the God who's raining down bread from heaven, which you've never seen before, he wants to live among you. And he's going to give you very specific instructions for how to build his house. And so in chapters 25 through 31, he gives you blueprints. Austin, can you fly it up there now? He gives blueprints. Now don't get too far ahead of reading. So, 25 through 31 blueprints. I'm going to get nerdy on you for a minute and give you an outline. 25 through 31 blueprint. You're all looking up at the screen. So looking here. 25 through 31 blueprints. There's a little section in the middle where he tells you a story. And then if you've been reading through the book of Exodus, chapters 35 through 40 are all about the building of the tabernacle. And he repeats himself. So there's repetition. God gives instructions. There's a little story, and then he recounts everything that he told you earlier. And so this is what I want you to see. Uh, Exodus 25, 10 through 20 says, have them make a chest of wood. And then in Exodus 37, it says that guy made the ark of Achaia wood two and a half cubits long. And so these, these chapters of scripture mirror each other. And you're left thinking, that's boring. Why do I have to read through four chapters of boring twice? Why do I have to, why do I, can I just read through it once? And this is the, this is why he does it. He does it for a very specific purpose. He wants you to see something. If I wanted to show you how great my wife was, if I said, Hey, I'm going to use her because I don't want to pick on any of you guys. If I said, Hey, Jesse, will you go? I've been working hard all day. Will you go get me two all beef patties, special sauce, cheese, pickles, onions, lettuce on a sesame seed bun? 
You all would know what I want. A Big Mac. Thank you. You're the only other McDonald's eater in here. I want a Big Mac. When she came back and she brought me lunch, if she wanted to show how obedient she was to the thing that I asked her to do, and this is not being degrading at all. If she wanted to show me, I did exactly what you wanted me to do. Perfect. She would say, here's your two all beef patties, special sauce, cheese, pickles, onions, lettuce on a sesame seed bun. She wouldn't just throw it in the door and be like, hey, here's your Big Mac, jerk. She wouldn't do that. She wants to show that, that she did exactly what I wanted to. And so God gives Moses very specific instructions in 25 through 31. And he says, this is what I want you to do. And then in chapters 35 through 40, Moses says it over again exactly. And he says, this is what I did. Moses showed you that he obeyed perfectly. Exactly what God said to do, the people did. Obedience. Now, what is man's purpose in life? Worship and obey. Moses shows you that the people obey perfectly. But in the midst of their obedience, what are they doing? That's where we pick up in chapter 32. Moses goes up. You can take it down, Austin. Moses goes up in the, um, thank you. Moses goes up on the mountain and he's going to meet with God. And the scripture says that Moses goes up there for 40 days. And the whole time he's up there, it looks like a consuming fire is on top of the mountain. You guys ever seen a consuming fire? You ever caught a couch on fire? Once you get that baby going, it's a consuming fire. You ain't putting the couch out once it gets on fire. A lot of you firefighters have probably rolled up to houses and thought, "Mm mm-mm. Too late. We're not going in there. That we're just gonna, we're just gonna protect everything else around it. But that house is gone. There's no saving it. It says that the top of the mountain was like a consuming fire. And when the people, or excuse me, when God is up there, uh, speaking with Moses, the people come to Aaron. And what do they say to Aaron? Make us gods that will go before us. And you're thinking, really? Really guys? You've been eating free Cracker Barrel biscuits from heaven for how long? And now you want Moses, you want God, excuse me, you want Aaron to make something that can go before you? And so this is what he says. Oh, where did I I put it? I skipped so much. Lost my spot. Anyways, you know that, um, that the people go up, God, excuse me, Moses goes up on the mountain. And then it says the people come to Aaron. This is chapter 32. And they tell Aaron, come, make a God for us who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. While they're saying that, they can look up at the mountain and they can see there's a consuming fire. They can see that Moses is on the mountain with God. But they say, "Hmm, we don't know what happened to him. He's gone. Make us gods that will go before us. So Aaron says, okay. He doesn't argue with him. He says, okay, take off your bracelets, take off your earrings, give them to me. And the scripture is very, very specific. It says in verse 3, Then the people tore off their gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Then he took from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. If you're Moses, this is when you think back and you remember, God told me to do this thing alone. God never told me to take Aaron with me. That was because I was complaining. You remember in Abraham's life when Abraham went and did what God told him, but he took Lot also? How much trouble that brought on Abraham? God told Moses to do that. And Moses cried and whined and made excuses. I can't talk. My speech isn't that good. And so he's like, all right, 
take Aaron with you. What's Aaron doing good right now? Fashioning golden calves. So in the middle section, God gets angry and says, Moses, your people have gone nuts. Moses comes down, he, he starts to, he burns up the golden calf, turns it into dust, throws it in the water, makes the people drink the water. And then he says to Aaron, this is comical. You can see this happening on a, on a, on like, this is a, this is the makings of a Saturday Night Live skit if you've never seen one. And so Moses is furious and he comes to Aaron and he says, Aaron, what happened? Verse 24, Aaron says, I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. They gave, they gave me earrings. They gave me gold and I just threw it in the fire and I didn't do it. Here come, and out came this calf. If you're Moses, have you ever wanted to kick somebody in the forehead in all of your life as much as you want to kick this guy right now? Lying to you, God's a consuming fire on the top of the mountain, and that's the best you can come up with is, I didn't do it, it just threw it in and here it came. You see the people's hearts? You see God gives commands to Moses. Moses carries them out perfectly. Perfect obedience. But sandwiched in the middle of perfect obedience, they're worshiping a golden calf. This should remind you of Cain and Abel. It is possible to obey God perfectly and your heart be far from God. It is possible for you to be an obeyer of God. It's possible for you to dress the right way. It's possible for you to drive the right car. It's possible for you to fit in perfectly at this church. You do the things you do. You smell the way we smell. You look the way we look. But in the midst of that obedience, your heart is somewhere else worshiping something different. And that's what the end of the book of Exodus is trying to show you. That the people are doing good and obeying, but they're worshiping a golden calf. You're going to see this thing played out when we get to the book of Numbers. You're going to see what God really thinks of this people. And the book of Numbers is going to scare you to death. The same way that God freeing the Israelites from Egypt... Scared people 350 years later, the book of Numbers should scare the church to the bone when we get to it. But before we get to the book of Numbers, we got to finish the book of Exodus. We got to get through the book of Leviticus. Now, if you go over to the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 40, we're winding down. We're about to land the plane here, I promise. Chapter 39, verse 32, I'm getting to 40. It says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was completed, and the sons of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. He says they were obedient. Verse 42. So the sons of Israel did all the work according to the, that the Lord had commanded Moses. And Moses examined all the work, and behold, they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. They had done it. They're obedient. They're obedient. They were able to accomplish a task. He keeps telling you how obedient they are. Now, chapter 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. 
But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day which it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. And so in the book of Exodus, what has just happened? We're almost done. They have just built a tent, a tabernacle, a tent. Tabernacle means dwelling place. So now God has a tent amongst the people, and there's a cloud over it by day, and there's fire over it by night. And it says that the whole time that they were following this tabernacle, that that's what happened. So these people never wandered, but God was living amongst them. And so they've built this tent. You guys know that we're getting to the book of Leviticus, but do you have any idea the value that this tent has? This tent was made of not just the tent, but the things in the tent were made of 2,000 pounds of gold. Does anybody have any idea what 2,000 pounds of gold is worth? A lot. When I did the math the first time, this was a long time ago, $1,200 an ounce comes out to $38.4 million. So when gold was going for $1,200 an ounce, the tent, just the gold in the tent, was worth $38.4 million. When gold spiked around $1,600 an ounce, $51.2 million. So the Israelites have just built a tent. And they called up Jimmy's hardware store. And they said, Jimmy, we need some materials. Yeah, what do you need? We need gold. Okay. How much gold do you need? Mm, Give me a pallet. I'll take a pallet of gold. And he's like, really? Are you sure there's nothing else that you could build the tent out of? And they're like, no, God told us to use gold. So that's what we're going to do. $58 million worth of gold. They had seven... 1,500 pounds of silver. That's over a million dollars of silver for a tent for God to live in. So naturally, if you had a, let's call it a $52 million tent, right? You ever been in Dick's Sporting Goods? You look around, you're like, okay, there's a $100 tent that I could stay in that. Maybe a $200 tent. That's good. A $350 tent. Wow, that's a really nice tent. $500 tent. We start looking at $500 tents just by a camper. Don't, don't keep looking at tents, anything about that. But you're looking around and you're like, wow, a $55 million tent? What do you do with that thing? Next week, book of Leviticus. What do you do with a $55 million tent? And it's going to tell you all sorts of great things about God. And that would be your question. So if you're reading through scripture, you read through Genesis, you're catching a story, you read through Exodus, you're getting the rest of the story. And Leviticus is kind of like an appendix. You guys ever read a technical manual for your job where it says, if you want more information on this, read appendix A. Leviticus is your appendix. And then the story is going to pick back up in the book of Numbers. Many a Bible reading plans crashed on the shores of Leviticus is what a really smart guy once told me. Follow the bulletin to read along with Leviticus so that you can make it through. There's really only two chapters that I'm asking you to read really well. The rest of it is a, is a heavy skim. But as we finish up the book of Exodus, it would be good for you to, to reflect on your life. Are you living a life where you're just simply trying to obey? Or do you have worship coupled with your obedience? When people follow mom and dad's religion, it turns into legalism. And you just do things because that's what you're supposed to do. But God doesn't want that sort of relationship with you. He wants to, to be very personal with you. He wants you to enjoy worshiping and obeying him. And it's not burdensome. And so if following the Lord for you is incredibly burdensome, I wonder if you've ever met him the way that he wants you to meet him. And so let's talk. If you're here and you've never worshiped and obeyed the Lord, you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life, I'd love to speak with you about that. 
But the main thing for today is that church, it would be a tragedy for you only to obey and not worship. With me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Moses and the obedience that he showed. And God, we thank you that in the midst of Moses' obedience, you saw fit to show us in story form what you expect from us out of worship and obedience. Lord, I pray that as we go through the daily grind, as we go to work and we go to sleep and we raise our families, Lord, I pray that in the midst of all of that, that we would be people who worship you. God, I pray that we would never lose sight of how great you are. And Lord, I pray that we would never grow weary of worshiping and obeying you. And God, we pray that you would accept um, our best efforts that we give you. And I pray that you would grant us repentance along the way so that we can do this thing right. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you guys will stand for a hymn of invitation. Hey, thank you guys for coming. I know that was a big chunk that we that we took. I hope that you're able to uh, follow along with the story that uh, is being told. Uh, I'm telling you, next week's going to be awesome. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, and I mean that genuinely. I hope that you don't think I'm just pulling your leg. But it's going to be a good time. A uh, bunch of announcements in the bulletin. There's one thing that I forgot. The Baptist men are going on a trip to help some of the victims that have been affected by ice storms. And uh, our church is interested in getting up a group of men to go uh, probably next weekend or the next weekend. If that is something that any of you men or women are interested in doing, this is the Baptist men are sponsoring it, but anybody's welcome to come. If any of you men are interested in going, if you could touch base with, with Jack or Randy, and then based on the interest that you guys show, we'll figure out what weekend we want to go and exactly what we can do. Make sense? So the Baptist men have some disaster relief things. We'd love to hook up the trailer and take it and uh, help some folks out either next weekend or the weekend after. Uh, But see Jack and Randy if you're interested. Uh, Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dr. Tarkington, would you close us?